Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you all for coming this evening, despite the rain outside. My name is Dr Philippa Smales from the Research for Development Impact Network. On behalf of the RDI Network, the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre here at the University of Sydney and the Development Leadership Programme, it is my honour to introduce our two speakers tonight. So firstly, Dr Duncan Green. Dr Duncan Green is Oxfam Great Britain's Senior Strategic Advisor. He teaches in international development at the London School of Economics where he is a Professor of Practice. He is also currently a visiting fellow at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. Previously, Duncan was Senior Policy Advisor on Trade and Development at DFID, the UK Department of International Development. His From Poverty to Power blog is one of the most widely read on international development, and Duncan is the author of several books, including his latest book, How Change Happens, exploring the topic of social and political change from the perspective of international development, Today, Duncan will be speaking with Dr. Tussara Dibley. <laughs> so, Dr. Dibley is the Deputy Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. So, she researches in social movements in Southeast Asia with a particular focus on Indonesia and Timor Leste. Her recent research projects have focused on the role of NGOs in peace building in Timor Leste and Indonesia and on the disability movement in Indonesia. She is the author of Partnerships, Power and Peace Building, NGOs as Agents of Peace in Aceh and Timor-Leste. If you can join me in welcoming them both. Thanks, Philippa. Um, and welcome, Duncan Green. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you here at the University of Sydney. Uh, we were just speaking earlier that it's, you know, you're, you're basically a rock star for those of us uh, interested in um, international development. That is an incredibly sad thought, okay. <laughs> um, so we're, we're here to talk about your new book, How Change Happens, a very bold title and really important topic for our times, I think. Um, I think a lot of us in the room are the sort of people who are perhaps feeling a little bit anxious about the kind of changes that are going on around us. Um, so, and, and thinking about that process of change is an important and, and powerful thing to do at the moment. So I guess I was interested in a little bit about what inspired you to write this book and what you hope to achieve by, from it. I think it's, it's quite a reflective book in that for years, yeah, for, for decades, I've been writing about particular change episodes. And I was writing about the episodes themselves in Latin America, Lives of Children, the, the swing to uh, market economics, and then a uh, previous book, From Poverty to Power, on different aspects of development. And then I started to realize that I was seeing repeat patterns of change. And I started to think about change as a thing in itself. And, and, and I think I slightly reverted to my, uh, my undergrad degree was actually in physics. And I started to sort of get all physics-y mm -hmm. and thinking about, oh, well, look at these interesting patterns which are emerging, which is how physicists think. Um, and so it sort of slightly was a, it's a sort of meta book, which is recognizing that the same patterns occur at local level and global level and between different geographies. It's not saying change is the same, but the patterns are very similar. And I got very interested in, in, in slightly stepping back and thinking, how does that change happen? And then the other big thing that I've always been involved with is the pe other people who are trying to make change happen 
doing it well or doing it not well. Mm. And I've seen lots of examples of people doing it not well as well as well. Um, so I guess uh, going, or going from that, um, the, the model that you propose in the book about, about how change happens, it's, it's, uh, you're, move, you're encouraging people to move away from thinking about change as something that happens in a straight line. Um, you alluded to your physics background, which is sort of all about, you know, uh, and some of the thinking that came from that. Um, could you share with us why you think this linear approach to thinking about making change is a problem and, um, uh, and, and what your model adds to this? I mean, I think the, 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 the penny dropped when I... So, but it's not just aid, it's you know, activism in general. You, it, it's very hard to imagine our world without projects. And yet the project is a particular way of thinking, a particular way of behaving and understanding the world. And it's incredibly linear. Although it's got some bells and whistles, essentially it's like baking a cake. You know, you say, if I've got the uh, uh, ingredients, if I've got the recipe, if I've got the oven, and I follow the, the recipe, I can predictably produce a cake. And if I have a cake at the end of it, I can attribute the cake the fact that I followed the recipe, and that's what a project does. It says, if I do these activities, I predict I will achieve this outcome, and if I get the outcome, I can somehow attribute this to the activities. And that just doesn't describe most political situations, most social situations. It doesn't describe our own lives. Mm -hmm. you know, when my kids were born, I didn't draw up a 20-year log frame which set out you know, all activities I was going to do for those you know, in the next 20 years. And if I did, those children would be horribly you know, messed up. Um, and yet, somehow, we think that that's how we should behave as activists, and it just seems fundamentally wrong when what you should be doing is deep observation of the system and all its changes and constant turbulence, and then learning to dance with the system, a wonderful work, phrase from Danella Meadows, um, which requires a very different set of skills and a set of um, tools, I think. Could you give us an example of someone you know who's done a good job of dancing with yeah, sure. I mean, lots. Um, so 2008, massive global financial crisis. Um, and uh, a, a, an inspired and very determined uh, Oxfam campaigner spots an opportunity. Um, since the 1970s, a small group of progressives have been talking about a Tobin tax, a small tax on financial transactions. Um, and it got absolutely, which, which could be used to sort of fund good causes, it got absolutely nowhere for 30 years. When the financial crisis comes, this guy, whose name is Max, uh, spots that A, governments are now going to be desperate for new sources of revenue, and B, everybody hates the banks, so the politics has changed. And uh, he instinctively re recognizes that a critical juncture in the shape of a big shock like this is a fantastic time to try something new. He, puts, he gets a great big coalition together. The first thing they do is take this very boring idea of the Tobin tax and rechristen it the Robin Hood tax, um, taking from the rich and giving to the poor. They get lots of funny videos and creative filmmakers involved, and it just goes massive. And at the moment, 10 countries in Europe are negotiating. The it's the second global tax, second international tax, but it's going to be incredibly historically significant if it, get, if, it get, if it actually gets through. And that's by spotting an opportunity and seizing it. But you see that any good campaigner will spot a new opportunity, a story in the media, uh, an unexpected election result, and make the most of it. 
and that goes against a lot of the project, projectization of aid and development. Right. So, um, I don't know, maybe could we talk a little bit more about that. Like, how is it that this idea of, of, of a, a project running across time, how does that dull down or, or make it less likely that people would, would um, jump at these new types of opportunities? <coughs> In, in your experience? Yeah, um, so because if you've got a project plan which you have negotiated a great, with a great personal cost, hmm. um, you've got some funding for it or some agreement for it, um, often institutions are very reluctant to say, okay, change, change the indicators, change the plans, you know, dance with the system. So people feel very reluctant to open up the discussion. But that produces a ridiculous situation where people just blunder ahead with the plan, even when it's no longer relevant to the context. So, so the book is arguing, yeah, we have to rethink how we support, how we fund, how we work. And that's, I know there's a lot of people, yeah, I'm not the only person who's saying this, there's lots of people in Australia uh, and the UK and the US and elsewhere who are trying to rethink this cake model and mm. think, how do we do it differently? Mm. So then this comes back to one of the other things I was thinking about reading your book, um, if part of the reason people are not already dancing with the system is because of this project model, then it, it's probably quite challenging for a lot of people to, for people in, in a lot of different organisations to take on the model that you're proposing here. So, you know, what, what, uh, what strategies would you suggest for people who want yeah. to experiment with this? More innovative, more experimental and possibly less transparent way of... Um, uh, working with communities and making change. So, okay, that's, that was a nice little sting on the end there. Um, <laughs> I'll dance the first bit and then we'll do the transparent bit second, okay. Um, so the first bit is you're essentially saying that the aid business, the way aid is, the way activism is supported, funded, needs to change. Well, that's just an advocacy challenge. You're trying to change the behaviours of people with power and money. So you would look for the champions, you would look for the, the moments, critical junctures, you would take advantage of failures of the old model, you know, and you put together the most persuasive possible coalition and evidence for why you should do this. And there's, at the moment, I think the NGOs are actually behind this, I think they're uh, behind the curve. Most of the interesting thinking is coming from actually people you wouldn't expect. So I was at a, a meeting of USAID, the, the USAID agency, with its implementing partners, who are the, the big management consultants and the organizations which implement big aid projects for, for the states, for the US. And USAID have rewritten their procurement guidelines. Okay, bear with me, it sounds boring, but it's really important, okay? They've rewritten their procurement guidelines and they were saying to all these 200 people in the room, you will be adaptive, all right? Now that felt a bit odd. I mean, it didn't, didn't sort of seem to go with the that realized that what was going on in the aid business was the tyranny of the project. Implementing partners are very interested in adaptive management. Um, uh, and, and the uh, examples of what they meant was, if you come back to us after three years and say, everything we, we've done exactly what we said we were going to do, it's all gone to plan, USAID is saying that will count against you, because that means you haven't been paying attention. And when they asked the implementing partners what help they needed to do this stuff, one of the things which really struck me was the, um, the partner said, we need a hotline so that when your junior staff try to stop us doing this, try to stop us changing the indicators, stop us changing the plan, we can go over their heads mm. and basically get some support from senior management to put pressure on the, the sticky middle. Mm. So interesting that they've got that far with it. Mm -hmm. yeah? 
Now, transparency is an interesting question. So what you don't want is to have a bunch of northern activists treating the rest of the world like lab rats and experimenting on them. Um, and uh, or venture capitalists where they say, okay, we're going to start these 10 projects and then randomly, without warning anyone, chop nine of them. So you do need a different way of doing that which respects the principles of partnership and ethics and so on. But I've seen it work. So can I give you one example where it works? Yeah. It's the one example, right? But, um, so, and it's, I'll tell, it's a little bit of a story, but it has lots of different elements which are really useful. So in Tanzania, um, DFID were funding uh, work on accountability through a management consultant, KPMG. And a very imaginative entrepreneurial woman at KPMG came to Oxfam and said, here's a million dollars, do something different on accountability, because we're really bored with what everyone else is doing. Nothing's, no one's doing anything interesting. So the first, and we said, great. So the first thing that happened was that the Oxfam computer said no. Right? The Oxfam computer said, well, unless, uh, unless you can give me key performance indicators, a log frame, a project plan. So it took us months to actually accept DFID's money. So I always remember that when people say, oh, you know, we're really nimble and agile as NGOs, but the donors wouldn't allow it. Okay, I remember Tanzania. We eventually, we, we worked out a way to accept the million dollars, and a, a, a genius program officer called Jane um, said, well, we don't know what to do, so why don't we do eight things, yeah, a bunch of things uh, at the same time and see which ones work. And so they brainstormed with partners and communities and consultants and came up with eight different ways to pursue accountability in one region. And that included everything from strolling musicians to school management committees to farm field promoters and, and lots of different ways. And they said, in advance, we're going to sit down after nine months with the communities and the partners and we're going to come up with you know, what we think the success criteria are and we're going to winnow out the good ones and, 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 and ditch the bad ones. She'd accidentally inv invented either venture capitalism or evolution, depending on which way you see it. But it's the same thing, variation, selection, amplification. So then Diffid got cold feet, because we were saying, well, you know, we think six or seven of these are going to fail. And Diffid said, Phew. and Diffid said what, uh, what funders always say when they, don't, when they just feel anxious, but they don't quite know what to do. They said, we're not sure about your theory of change. Right. If anyone ever says that to you, just go, hmm, I'm not sure about yours, because that, that puts the fear of God into them when you do that. Um, so we had this kind of weird discussion between me and a Norwegian guy who was the diffid theory of change kind of wrestling person, and I went in for, on behalf of Oxfam, and we wrestled on theories of change. And at some point, I just said, you realize that this is a venture capitalist model of change, right? I mean, so just like a venture capitalist, we're going to fund a load of startups, and then we know that lots of them will go bust, and one or two of them will do really well. And it was like something had happened in the room, and they ended up giving us another million dollars because it was private sector. Yeah, we'd used the right language. Um, but luckily, it was a really good project. So I think we spent uh, two million dollars very well. You know, um, so it was just it, it just showed me a lot of different things. But then the other really depressing thing is that's never been replicated anywhere. And I think this issue of failure and being seen to fail is really difficult in the aid business. Right, so that was actually going to be my next question about, mm -hmm. about failure and how, in the aid business, how do people go with failure? How do they deal with it? Okay, so Engineers Without Borders um, are famous for setting up a failure website. And the idea was that all other NGOs and engineers, they started off 
and put up a couple of really stonking failures. Um, and the idea was that everyone else would come and put up their failures, and the website failed. <laughs> and um, I've seen it in Oxfam. So we had, you know, I, I was head of the research team at one point before they realized I was a terrible manager. Um, and we had an internal meeting where it was agreed we would all bring our failures. And so we were just really naive. So the research team comes up with a really atrocious failure. We go into it in great detail. And everybody else from Oxfam goes, hmm, interesting. That's really, that's a massive failure. And then, then it got to be other people's chance to say that about their failure. And it was, oh, well, our failure is we work too hard. Or, you know, our failures, we just, yeah, we're so humble. Um, and I realized I'd been completely conned by everybody else in Oxfam into making a fool of, us, of myself. And, and what I took from that was you can't use the word failure. If you ask people, what did you learn during the course of this, you get the same stuff, but you don't force the humiliation on people. So I think the, a lot of the discussion, which is actually about failure, is now couched, I think, more, more usefully in terms of in that, you know, you have these acronyms in, in, in aid and monitoring, evaluation and learning is what NEL is one of them. And in the past, it's been a very big M and a very big E and a tiny little L. And what we're doing now is actually a lot more interest on the L, the learning, and how do you apply that learning to improving as you go. So I think failure has become learning and I think that's a good thing. Uh, so one of the chapters in your book is about norms and changing norms. Mm. Um, that's an important part of the bigger change agenda. Um, and it sounds like you are doing that in, in these, you know, these interactions that you have, you know, changing. Feeling of it, but actually, when USAID says you will be adaptive, suddenly all these... Um, uh, you know, even this example of failure to learning. Uh, I don't know, just interested a little bit more in, in the, the role of norms and why that's important, because it's probably not something that uh, people working in NGOs or activists necessarily are thinking about front and centre. Mm. I mean, I think it, it's... it's it's becoming increasingly important to me, this whole question of norms. I mean, activists, activists want to know that they're getting something for all that effort, you know, for the sleepless nights and the long hours and the doing scary things and, and all that. So you, that means that pushes you towards the tangible. So you want to know what policy you've changed, what spending commitment. Yeah, you want to have something to show for it. But actually, if you stand back and look sort of over the longer term, so one of the most, you know, most impressive sort of positive changes as changes in social norms, by which I mean how we understand what it is to be human, both in terms of us and in terms of how we treat other people. So I wrote, yeah, about 20 years ago, I wrote a book on um, child rights in Latin America. And it was absolutely fascinating watching how a process in the UN, Convention on the Rights of the Child, had linked up with grassroots children's movements. And across Latin America, people, you know, Ordinary men, women, and children were changing that very, very basic thing of how do you understand what is a child? Is a child something that belongs to the adults? Is a child a, a creature with rights, you know, an individual? Mm. And, and, and that shift seemed to be happening really fast. So I guess what I'm saying on norms is that we have this, and uh, norms seem to be changing at an accelerating speed on sexuality, disability, women's rights with backlashes and sort of turbulence, but overall I think the, the direction is progress, progressive, and we have very little idea about how those norms change, why they change, or how to try and deliberately change them. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's this kind of unknown world, mm -hmm. and I think we've accidentally probably done a load of norm change. It would be nice if we could actually work out how that happened. Mm -hmm. um, next book, maybe? How um, norms change. <laughs> it's never gonna sell. 
Uh, one of the things that um, I was thinking about with your book is around the, the role of leadership. This mm. again, another thing that, that you talk about um, as being very important to stimulate leadership. Leadership is something that we think about here at the University of Sydney as a whole. It's also something that at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre we, we think about a lot um, in terms of uh, we, have, we run projects with leaders in the women's movement and disability movement in, in Indonesia. And, and it is, um, uh, it, it, you know, cultivating leaders seems to be uh, an important aspect of change making. So why, why, why do you think it's not something that's had more attention up until this point? Um. I okay, I want to ask you a question about mm. how you understand leadership in a minute, but just answering your question, I think there's a really odd alliance of left and right on this. So if you're a lefty, you like sort of Marxist surges of nameless masses, yeah? <laughs> classes rising up, overthrowing things. And, and you don't want leaders because they're going to betray the masses and you know, they're generally suspicious. And if you're a free market economist, you want everybody behaving through rational expectations, in which case you don't need leaders at all, right? So, so actually left and right, both of them are blind to the fact that in real life, people are massively influenced by individuals around them mm -hmm. at a local level, at a national level. Um, and we, again, I think we have very little understanding of, of why some people become leaders and why some people stand up and some people don't. And that's my question to you. What have you learned in Indonesia about the ingredients, the magic recipe, the secret sauce. Of, of who and how big Grassroots leaders. Yeah. Um, so what, what we've seen with the work we've done with um, people in, in I'll think, talk about the disability sector a little bit more because the examples there are, are really interesting. Um, so we have had a couple of groups come through and they spend two weeks with us and um, they're selected by um, Australia Awards program. Um, so they're already identified within their community as people with potential. They come here for two weeks, they go through some training and then they go back home. Um, uh, and the stories we've heard from the people who've returned have been uh, really exciting. So even the process of being selected to come to Australia has increased their I guess their reputation or it's just given them a level of prestige that has empowered them to make change within their community that they didn't feel that they were able to do before. So I think that part of what makes somebody a good leader is not necessarily having, um, it, it's a little bit about being um, recognised and given the opportunity to, to make those decisions but also to recognise that leadership is something that you can exercise wherever you are so you don't have to be. So you think anybody can be a leader? I think that most people can take a leadership role in the space that, mm -hmm. that they have authority over. Um, uh, not everyone does it, not everyone has the confidence to do it, not everyone wants to do it, but I think it's, I think it's possible. And those leadership decisions might be really tiny. Um, it might be um, making the decision to, I don't know, um, be the person who cleans the fridge out in your office and um, you, you know in the in the shared staff kitchen that type of thing to uh, challenging your boss on on a decision that doesn't quite look right okay yeah. i definitely fail on the first one mm. <laughs> well you need leaders in, in lots of different areas mm. so sorry back to you yeah no so the so thinking then about leadership i think that the model that you're proposing requires quite a, little bit, quite a lot of leadership to, to push forward and to, to, mm. to sort of make the changes in, 
in the way people are thinking about how to design projects and implement them. Now, one of the possible challenges in making that sell would be how to, um, how to convince a public that maybe doesn't really understand how the, AIDS, the problems with the aid system as it exists now, um, how to sell this idea for a solution that might that is more abstract. So changing the kinds of language people use to talk about project aid through things like sponsoring a child or um, paying for, you know, paying $30 for a goat to, uh, for a community, you know, like that might be a, a Christmas present. Um, so how, how, what's, what's the story you tell about this, this type of model um, for people who might not be so, uh, not so engaged with the sector? I think we've got into a bit of a rut on truthiness um, in the aid business where I think it's partly the, uh, the lack of confidence of politicians and partly the importance of both economists and medics in the aid business. That we've ended up with a situation where we think the way to stand up your narrative is to chuck a load of data at it, a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics, regressions, and that that is the way to convince people. Um, and that, I think that doesn't work, actually. I think we've got very bad at telling stories, very, um, um, our attempts to, to do narratives are very crude. You know, Oxfam has these two versions of the narrative. One is, thank you, Oxfam, uh, for my goat. You know, it's a sort of fundraising narrative. You're very, very crass, rather patronizing. And the other one is a completely unintelligible 200-page evaluation report. And there's nothing in between, which is a kind of grown-up story of change. So I think because we've got so stuck in the numbers, we're not telling stories. If we're going to tell a story of ambiguity and uncertainty, which I think we have to, then I think there's, the only way to do that is by telling really convincing stories of change. Because, you know, <clears throat> it's, I think it resonates with people's real lives. It, it ought to resonate with politicians' experience of their own politics. It's very odd. Politicians who totally get uncertainty, seizing events and possibilities and, and windows of opportunity, they become ministers of aid and suddenly they lose all that sense of how change happens and they want to see the numbers. Um, and they want you know, predictability when you can't have it. So we've got to recover that ability to, to tell a real story about it. I think that would help. One thing you said which is really interesting was, was I think another problem with what I'm saying is that um, the only way you can be honest with yourself in, a very, in, a, in one of these very complex, unpredictable systems is by actually being humble. I don't mean the false humility, which is quite common, you know. Um, humble bragging, if people come across humble bragging as a phenomenon. Follow a man called Yanis Varoufakis on Twitter, the former Greek finance minister, if you want to see Olympic standard humble bragging. Um, <laughs> Humbled by 500 people coming to hear me tonight, that kind of humility. Um, what we've got is evidence-based humility, that if, you, if you're in one of these complex systems, you can't predict what's going to happen, and you probably don't know what's going on actually right now. You're in a fog. And yet, you're having to be an activist, you're having to be quite determined and make change. And it's a cognitive dissonance which is difficult for people to both you know, speak truth to power, stick it to the man, whatever, and at the same time accept that you don't really know what's going on. And I think leadership is probably one of the, one of the things that's required to give people comfort in these very foggy places. Mm. So the one thing listening to you that, that comes to mind is, 
I think this model is will be hard to um, to sort of replicate at, at a mass scale. So identifying identifying leaders or finding projects um, that venture capitalist model, you know, finding those few that work uh, amongst many. Um, it seems that you you'll be looking looking for. Oh, so, so, yeah, this change happens, but it doesn't necessarily happen at a, uh, on a mass scale. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but that, that's kind of what I'm thinking, and that, that part of the comfort of numbers and statistics and data is that you have this sense that, you know, we can, we can, we can replicate this idea or this program across all the different countries where we're, where we're providing aid, or, um, and, and we have the numbers to prove it. And telling stories, well, you know, telling stories takes a lot of time. Uh, finding, the, finding the stories, telling them, yeah, I don't know. Is, is that something that you've thought about? That maybe yeah. does, it matter, does it matter? But the reason why we're having this conversation is because we don't have the numbers to prove it. Mm. The other way, the other way doesn't work. Mm. You know, so I'm just reading a, a fantastic book called Building State Capability at the moment, which, which is just going back over 20 or 30 years of failed attempts to say, oh, it works in this country, so let's just do it in all the other countries. Mm. So that sort of cookie cutter approach, when systems are so different and solutions are so context specific doesn't work so so what we're saying now is how do you build up a different approach and yes you do need things to be context specific and different in different places so scale is harder mm -hmm. uh, but there isn't a shortcut you can't just say you know um, it worked in Denmark so let's do it in Mali mm -hmm. which was sort of a kind of implicit mm -hmm. message mm -hmm. in a lot of aid in the past mm -hmm. Um, so uh, there's one other question around your around your book is about this relationship between insiders and outsiders in this process. Um, uh, so that's that's my area of interest. Um, so the research I've done is all about those relationships, those partnerships between international and local activists, and the system as it exists now doesn't. You know, those relationships sometimes um, can can re lead to quite uh, fruitful results, but th there's a lot of you know, the relationship of power between the person giving the money. And the can be complicated. Mm. Um, I'm just wondering how you how you think about that and how that factors into this process. Which, from my reading of the book, um, there's still going to be insiders and outsiders working together. There's still going to be money moving between people. So, how do we think about those dynamics of power and work with them or work around them? Okay, I wouldn't call those insiders and outsiders. I'd use, um, mm, yes. which is slightly different. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a great fan of a man called Robert Chambers. I don't know if people know Robert Chambers. Fantastic, um, participatory, um, disruptive, crazy posh. Um, a lot of aid projects, a lot of people engage. Relation or any relationship, you should ask yourself who is the upper and who is the lower in this relationship. Because although that's very crude, it will shape what is said and what is not said, who gets to decide what the topic of conversation is, all the rest of it. I often think about that when I hear people talk about partnership, because I think partnership is an atrocious word. Um, when one person is giving another person a million pounds or dollars, that is not partnership, um, or it's very, very hard to make it a partnership. One of the problems I was talking to Oxfam New Zealand about, I've been in New Zealand last week, and they're saying, how do we get a better discussion with, with the New Zealand government? And it's really difficult because when the government sees the NGO coming, they see that the NGO will either be asking for money or will be wagging fingers at them, you know, advocacy target or checkbook. And that's how the NGO thinks. The NGO looks at a government not as a bunch of people who are trying to do stuff, but as either you know, a target 
or as a, somebody who's going to sign checks. And in that situation, you can't have a proper conversation. It happens all the time. And that's between a relatively strong NGO like Oxfam and the government. So um, some of the things that I think have come up which are interesting on this is um, yeah, what, what the book is saying is far more priority to local knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that has some pretty big implications for the aid business. So white men in shorts were never that useful, but they're even less useful than they were if you buy this kind of argument about how change happens. So the white men in shorts are in full retreat in Oxfam, which is great. Um, much more sort of uh, authority given to local um, staff and you know, making sure that they're actually in charge of country programs, this kind of stuff. Comes with its own set of challenges. Local staff tend to be involved in local politics. That can be quite difficult, you know, and those sort of things. It's not just a kind of kumbaya nice thing. It's, it's a set of challenges, but there's no real um, alternative if you're going to take this, this process seriously. The other thing I think is money. Money is both a good thing and a terrible thing. So. If you give an NGO $10,000, it can enable them to buy a computer, get some people to a demonstration, it can make things happen. If you give them $10 million, it can destroy them. So this whole question of how you give money and sterilize the negative impacts is something we still haven't really cracked, I think. Uh, I came across a really, what I thought was an interesting example in East Timor. Uh, was, so I was looking at a project um, uh, run by the International Center for Transitional Justice. And it, as it happened, it was run by a woman who'd had a long relationship with uh, the sort of NGO sector in, in Timor. So she'd worked with them um, from before, uh, from during the Indonesian occupation. So she built up these personal relationships uh, with these different activists. And then when she got her role with the ICTJ, she was able to draw on those, those networks that she already had um, to, uh, to, to run projects. But the way she did it was that they all had to find their, their funding from other people. ICTJ found its own money, and then they worked on a joint project by mm. pooling the funding together. So that was a way to sort of sidestep the, um, the so they were, they were working in partnership in that particular instance, and their funding relationships were elsewhere. And then she was able to replicate that model um, in uh, Aceh. However, the lack of personal friendships between herself and the activists in Aceh meant that the, um, that process didn't work quite as smoothly. But so, um, yeah, I don't know, there's a little bit of trial and error. I mean, two good things, though. So one of the things I said to Oxfam New Zealand is they have to find some projects where they can just do a joint project with the government and no money changes hands, exactly in order to build trust. Mm. And the other thing is just relationships and emotional intelligence and, and that whole part, which is not in any of our project guidelines mm -hmm. and not in our training, is actually what makes a difference in so many situations. Yeah, and I guess, uh, yeah, it's hard to measure that. I mean, and, uh, I mean with, with the way aid works, people coming and going, people uh, not necessarily, not everyone is in a position to be able to make those sort of long-term mm -hmm. friendships and relationships if they're not from that place, mm -hmm. or, or even if they are. Um, I bumped into our gender advisor from Afghanistan in Dubai Airport a few years ago, and she told me that she was leaving Afghanistan after two years, and she was the longest-serving international gender advisor. Oh, two years. To two years, right? Yeah. So basically, nobody knows what the hell they're doing, yeah. right? In that, on that issue in that country. And I was thinking, well, you know, why aren't, why haven't we got relationships with the universities, relationships with Afghan you know, academics, or with even in exile, some some way of keeping some sort of institutional memory and, and relationships going, you know? It's difficult, though, to think if that's the sort of thing that you value. How do you? 
how do you create systems where that sort of thing's happening all the time? Because, you, because that comes down very much to people's personality and their motivations and their values, which, um, I don't know, you can't control for that. And you, I mean, maybe you can. Maybe you can do that through a recruitment process, um, but um, you can't ask someone to go and go to this country and make friends with everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 yeah the idea of Ultram emotional intelligence training yeah. would be horrendous. This <laughs> <laughs> is truly scary. There's also a flip side to that as well. So really long, you know, people who've been in organisations for a very long time, deeply entrenched, they develop those friendships and relationships and then they, that can, um, you know, those relationships fail and it can flip back the other way on, on projects. So I just have one, one other question then. You, you touched on the role of, um, you know, why are you not building up relationships with, with universities in, in the country? I'm interested in your views, given that we're having this conversation here at the University of Sydney, what role do universities and academics and researchers play in, in working towards this idea, the, this model that you're proposing mm. in your book? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm part-time academic, so um, I'm at LSE a day a week and I'm probably going to be doing a bit more in future. And it's, it ought to be a really easy marriage. You know, it ought to be very easy for academics and NGOs to work together. NGOs have people on the ground and Englishmen. Um, and uh, he says in any conversation, so there ought to be a really easy, you know, synergy and partnerships and all the rest of it. In practice, it's very, very difficult. Academics have an incredibly linear, a, differently, a different linear model of long-term research funding, publish so many papers, you know, oh, Global financial crisis, no, sorry, got to carry on with my research program. Um, uh, so, so they've got a different rhythm, uh, it makes it very hard to work together, completely different language, um, epistemic communities that actively discourage other people from understanding what on earth they're talking about mm -hmm. through their choice of language. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it, um, it's really difficult. I mean, trying to get LSE faculty to blog is just hilarious. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't have an internet. Um, it's one of those sorts of conversations, you know. Um, so it's, it's hard work. Right. Well, uh, okay. <laughs> no, no, no further comment, I suppose. Um, so let's talk a little bit about... Um, Are we going to let them ask questions at some point? Yeah, we will. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just want to ask you a little bit about the book and the sort of the, the nitty-gritty about the writing of it. Um, mm. So, as someone who writes as well, I'm always interested in the process other people other people use. Uh, mm. Is it something? Did you write it quickly? Did you do it all in one sitting? Do you write little bits here and there? How does it work? This one was a complete disaster, actually. Um, so, I mean, the writing of the book mirrored the message, which is chaotic, ambiguous. <laughs> So I sort of thought I could just cut and paste a load of blogs, mm -hmm. and that would basically be a first draft. Um, and I did that, and I sent the first draft to the editor, who's a wonderful, is an old friend of mine, and um, who's quite capable of speaking truth to authors. Um, and he just said, "Sorry, you've got to start again." So that was quite painful. Um, once I sort of got over the idea that there was a shortcut, and that I had to actually, you know delve in, it was very therapeutic because um, he was pushing me to write about myself in a way that yeah, NGOs don't tend to do first person, mm -hmm. and I'm fairly limited on first person usually in when I'm writing longer pieces, but he was forcing me to do that, he was forcing me to apply systems thinking sort of more deeply on it, and so it was actually very, it was, a, it was quite 
engaging, but it was really, really hard. Mm. And no, I don't, I'm not one of those savage messiah people who locks themselves away for two weeks and writes a book. You know, Branko Milanovic, I hate Branko Milanovic. He, he's, he wrote this brilliant book on inequality and in his acknowledgement said something like, thank you for the foundation who paid for me to go away for two weeks to write this book. I thought, like, what? You know, he was on some Caribbean island and he wrote a book in two weeks. Just absolutely outrageous. It took me about two years. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah that's, right? That's we all hate Brian Kamalanovich, yeah? yeah? Good, yeah. okay. <laughs> he probably just spent two weeks hanging out and wrote the book. Uh, I'm, I'm clinging to that, yeah. Um, so in your introduction, you mentioned that you put a draft online and you received mm. feedback from hundreds of people. Mm. Uh, I was speaking about this with um, my colleagues and we were both saying how terrified we would be to do that. But can you talk, would you recommend it? As I a absolutely draft? recommend it. So this is, um, I recommend it for both in, instrumental and intrinsic reasons, okay? so. So you've got a draft and you put it online and you say, open for comments. So number one, it's great PR, okay? <laughs> Lots of people have no intention of reading it, but say, ooh, isn't he inclusive? And you know, ooh, isn't that good? Um, we actually did much more than just put the draft online. We had a public vote on the cover, which was great, because we had some pretty dire cover designs. And this, got, this completely got over the argument in the, with, the, with the publisher, because it was quite clear from the public vote which, which cover design they wanted. So we tried to do that, but you actually do get useful comments. So about 600 people downloaded it, but only 60 people sent comments, which was a That's massive relief, right? Um, and some of the comments were, you know, why didn't you say more about X or Y? But some of them were just fantastic stories, which you can just cut and paste and stick in the book, you know, with, with credit, obviously. Um, and so it improved the quality of the book. Uh, it tests everything. You get lots of free consultancy, and why don't we do it with everything we publish? I, you know, and it's interesting that so many people are terrified of doing this, actually, because I don't, there's just no downside to it in practice. You never get slagged off for putting, a, in my experience, yet, uh, for putting a draft online. So I urge all writers to take advantage of, of the uh, hive mind of the web. Think about it, I'll think about it. Um, I think we might open up here for questions from the audience and... Um, uh, Do we need mics or just going to shout? Uh, no, I think Meredith's We've got mics. Because this so, is yeah. being recorded, so you need to wait for yeah. the mic. Um, so maybe I'll take this gentleman in the front here. Uh, my question really relates to um, the, uh, the steady state economy. One of the things that I noted when the uh, the sustainable development goals were published by the, the UN that they quite uh, explicitly did not include the steady state economy as one of, their, uh, one of the goals. In fact, goal eight, uh, they uh, included uh, economic growth and full employment. I'm just wondering how significant do you see that uh, lack of leadership on the part of the uh, sustainable development goals people because I think most of us kind of acknowledge that we can't have infinite economic growth on a planet of finite resources, that it's, uh, it's an issue that affects both the developing world and uh, our own uh, middle and, and upper income countries. Okay. Do you want to take a couple? Yeah, we'll take a couple. Are there, uh, yep, and... Right. Really good communications, uh, and academics have the crucial clever bit in the middle. Uh, G'day, uh, my name's James Cox, um, and when you 
began, you started talking about the moment of global crisis as a catalyst for change. And um, you don't always have big moments like that that you can, that you can pin your change on. Um, and uh, so I'm just wondering about what can be done to create, to, to generate moments of change. And I'm particularly interested because I'm in the process of setting up an organisation focusing on peace building in the Pacific, which is, I think it's important, I have friends who think it's important, but it's not particularly a major part of the discourse yep. here. Um, so, and, and I guess I'll, I'll propose an answer which I'd like you to comment on, which um, it's, it's about uh, convergence of, of narrative to touch on another point that you raised. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you're talking about peace building and understanding and, and uh, going deeply into un understanding contexts and building shared understanding of contexts, that that is something which it can be really hard and, and require courage, but when people are finally on, the, you know, on some semblance of the same page, is that something that you can be pushing towards to create that, that moment of change from which you can then act? And in that moment then, is that when the project actually does come back into the picture? Mm. Okay. Let's start with those two, I think. Okay. So, um, there's a fantastic book, not by me, coming out this week um, for a friend of mine called Kate Rayworth, who's got a book called Donut Economics, which is published on Thursday. Um, and she's got a very interesting take on the growth, degrowth, growth sort of debate. Um, she's been agonizing about it. She's an economist and an environmentalist, and she's been agonizing about this for years. Um, and, and her view is that um, degrowth doesn't work, growth doesn't work, and you actually need growth that oscillates depending on you know, the, the, the requirements of the economy. I'm... And she goes quite a long way to answering the bicycle question, which I've been worrying about for a while, which is, some aspects of the economy resemble a bicycle in that if you stop riding a bike, you fall off. And if, uh, if aspects of the economy are actually implicitly dependent on growth, for example, um, uh, debt-driven uh, 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 finance or um, competition between firms so that the, the firm that, that grows quicker wipes out the others, there are certain things which may actually be very difficult to to fit into a steady-state idea. So steady-state economics tends to work great as a kind of overall arching, overarching thing. And then when you think about the dynamics of particular bits, it starts looking very difficult. Kate, I think, has gone a long way to answering my bicycle questions. Um, and I urge people to have a look at the book when it comes out. I'm not going to talk about how much I hate the SDGs unless someone else asks the same question, OK? Um, I've been whinging about the SDGs since at least 2012. I have a long track record of whinging about the SDGs. I think they're terrible. Um, what happens when there isn't a crisis? It doesn't seem like a problem we're going to have anytime soon. But anyway, I mean, uh, um, it's, very, it's a good question. I, I, and I think there's a couple of things on that. You know, there are known unknowns to use Donald Rumsfeld, right? So you, you know that elections are going to come. You know that if you're working on Zimbabwe, you know that at some point Robert Mugabe is going to die. You know, you can predict um, some of these, or semi-predict some of these things. If you're working on climate change, you know there are going to be disasters of one kind or another. So you can do a lot of prep for those moments. You don't just wait for them to happen. 
So if you're working on climate change, then you put the coalitions together, you write 90% of the paper you know, about the levels of attribution of particular weather events to, to climate change, and then when it comes, you get it out into the media in, the couple of, in a couple of days rather than a couple of months, and you, and you take advantage of the window. Um, I think an important part of what you do outside the critical juncture is about relationships, but you need to build the alliances and the trust. I'll give you an example. So, I worked on a thing called the Ethical Trading Initiative, which was um, big, big supermarkets, uh, trade unions and NGOs trying to sort out labor rights in supply chains. Really hard work. The trade unions hated the NGOs. The corporates hated the trade unions. It was really difficult. But yeah, you, you stick at it. Um, you go down the pub after the meetings. You build relationships. When that horrible disaster happened at Rana Plaza in Bangladesh a few years ago and 1,100 people died, because they had the relationships of trust, they were on the phone that, that night and they, they were able to just suddenly get, within a few weeks, a new fire safety accord in Bangladesh with a whole load of monitoring and sort of you know, proper implementation because they had the relationships in place. And that was a really nice, for me, illustration of, of what the slog can, can do in making you ready for the moment. And I guess it's the similar, I imagine similar sort of things would apply in, in your case. In terms of whether you then projectize it, I think little bits of delivery lend themselves to projects. You know, there are, there are things which require cakes, um, but it's just not, but the, 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 the problem is that the cake is seen as um, it rather than just a small piece of this wider understanding of how change happens. Uh, okay, we have time for a few more questions. Um, uh, yes, second row, and then um, back. Hi, very interesting talk, thank you. Um, uh, you talk a bit about progressive change and how luckily on average the change has been progressive, but that's actually not quite true because often there are conflicting direction of change going forward, going back, for example. Sorry. Ability, how to handle gender, sexuality, and stuff mm -hmm. like that. There are differing direction of change. So, how would your theory of change handle that? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one more thing, uh, I'll be that one person who wants to hear you winch about the SDGs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm quite pleased, really. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Uh, hi, um, it's quite a broad question, but um, I guess I'd just be interested in your thoughts on the aid industry as a whole. Um, given that NGOs, um, you know, are quite a small part of the aid industry, really, mm. and um, so much, say, of donor funds goes to other organisations. Um, yeah, I mean, just just generally interested whether you think it does more harm than good, or um, if it's worthwhile as a whole. Okay. Another one? Maybe we do two, two at a time. Okay, especially because she has two. Yep. Okay. No, that's fine. It's fine. Um, yeah, so lots of bad change happening. I come from Britain. Um, <laughs> so we appear to be about to invade Spain. Um, go figure. Um, so I guess a couple of comments on that. One is, um, you yeah, know, Change is always turbulent, there's always backlashes, and, and that's, I think, what we're seeing in the States and Britain at the moment is a backlash against a period of rapid change. So people feel 
they don't recognize the country, they don't recognize the normative framework. You know, the way they say it is I'm sick of political correctness. You know, I want to be horrible about a whole range of people I'm not allowed to be horrible about anymore. That sort of, you know, terrible oppression that people suffer. Um, so you get backlashes. And I guess one of the things in, a couple of things about uh, which the book talks about, one is stopping bad change happening is at least as big a part of many activists' work as pr promoting good change. And in some ways, it's easier, actually, I think, because it's, it's often easier to build a coalition around stopping bad stuff. If you build a coalition around trying to get a positive change, and then you get a half victory, the coalition usually falls apart with amazing fights and, and rancor. Um, so, so sometimes stopping bad stuff happening is actually easier, I think. Um, on the SDGs, uh, and I'll, I'll sort of plug in the 30-second one rather than the 10-minute uh, one. Um, if you're, so in about 2011, people started saying, oh my god, the Millennium Development Goals are going to run out. What should we do? And you'd think that the first thing you would do is actually see whether the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, had had any impact on anything, right? My take is that the MDGs had a lot of impact on aid. They're the Millennium Aid Goals, the MAGs. But in terms of impact on de developing countries' governments, very arguable. There's almost no research, right? Actual research. The, the usual version of the research that there is is going along to a developing country government and saying, do you approve of the MDGs? At which point the government goes, yeah. And that's proof that the MDGs are effective, right? Um, there was a piece in The Guardian this week saying, isn't it amazing? The MDGs were so effective because poverty reduction accelerated after the year 2000. Correlation, causation, you know, those are the two different things. Maybe it's just that poverty reduction increases when years start with a two. Yeah, there's no, there's no way, there's no attempt to actually prove that correlation, uh, that causation. And then when it came to the SDGs, sorry, this is more like the 10-minute one, isn't it? Um, when it came to the SDGs, no one went to, from, to governments and said, of all these international instruments, you know, people talk about the SDGs as though they're the only thing in town. There's 190-odd ILO conventions. There's an enormous number of UN conventions. There's international law. There's the Geneva Conventions. Which ones of these actually have traction on national governments and why is a piece of research that no one has done, uh, as, far as, as far as I can see at all, but it certainly never entered into the SDG conversation. So instead, what you have is a bunch of people in New York at the UN who have got a system which will in improve the quality of data co collection, which is good, and uh, create jobs for them, which is kind of irrelevant. But it doesn't actually, it's not fit for purpose. It was never designed to have influence at national level. So I got quite cross about the SDGs. Um, what do I think of the aid industry? I love the aid industry, of course, trust me. I'm objective. Um, it's $140 billion a year, right? which is both a lot and not much. Um, it's, a, it's about a quarter of the amount that goes to developing countries from migrant workers. Um, so, yeah, that's more like five, five, sixty, six hundred billion, um, just as for one comparator. So it's, and it includes a lot of different things. And the trouble about talking about aid is you're talking about everything from that $10,000 to an NGO to an enormous chunk of money going to build a dam no one wants. And it's all covered, you know. So I think yeah, the only useful thing that I find uh, is to look at aid as a system with lots of different parts and to try and understand which bits are good and which bits are bad. It's, you know, 
I, I don't get into conversations about whether aid is good or aid is bad. It doesn't seem like a useful conversation to me. One of the things that is happening at the moment is a very big backlash against aid. Uh, cuts in aid spending proposed by President Trump. I still have trouble saying those two words together, but I'm going to keep trying. Um, uh, and quite possibly in a number of other countries too. Even if you think that aid is, that big, big pots of money are a problem, when aid is cut, you're probably going to lose the good bits, not the bad bits. And that's what worries me. It's all going to come down like a house of cards and you won't be able to just take off the bad bits of aid and keep the nice pieces. So I think... Example, even in Indonesia, discussions about how to handle this... this. And there was a couple other hands. Um, I'll take the one in the middle here. Um, this lady in the front. Um, I saw a pending. Oh, sorry. sorry. All right. <laughs> um, maybe a couple questions. Um, I was quite happy when the book came out, particularly because I've been thinking about um, these questions a lot. We had our chat earlier. Um, for me, one of the biggest obstacles is maybe the big organizations, and I guess Oxfam would be one of them. Um, now, you had a gender advisor that was two years in Afghanistan. I was over a decade in Afghanistan. I worked exclusively with grassroots organizations. So, um, which, which has, you know, it's pros and cons. So that's for me a question, you know, and I, but, you know, they're still better than the contractors, which is the aid industry. Let's mm -hmm. just name some names, you know, because I met, met a lot of the US aid contractors. Um, but for me, it's almost the funding mechanisms, having worked with a various set of donors. Some donors are far more flexible to let adaptation happen. The Swiss, for example, mm. are brilliant. If you're ever as lucky to really get a contract with a Swiss, A, they do it long term, they, they give you a year to develop it, and they have this adaptive management built in. So for me, that's a question, how do you change it? Um, and the other one is, you know, a lot of what you say, and I find is the same thing what ODI is doing, politically sensitive, you know, development, it goes back to Mary Anderson's do no harm. So these ideas have been around to some agree, to, to some a while, this, this, this local context sensitive knowledge. I do believe in that question with the insider and the outsider um, is that outsiders can bring something if they stay long enough to actually have consultations with the insiders, right? And particularly more transformative ideas, or giving them ideas of how things have changed elsewhere and could perhaps, I'm saying could, not, not, not translating. So it's just some of those feet for that. And I feel there's very little systems to actually facilitate that. It really comes down to individuals in the end, so. Mm. Thank you. Um, a slightly different question is about social entrepreneurship and social enterprise, whether they add anything to the mix of how change happened. And what do you think about the whole social innovation movement and the hordes of MBA and techie people descending into you know, countries and saying that we can build an app and that's how change happens in a way? That's what I call a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, thanks very much for this discussion. Um, I'm Tessa, I'm a climate change lawyer, and I'd just be really grateful to hear from you if you can think of any examples, I guess, from um, development in the last number of decades or the aid in industry, examples that are analogous to the faces, to the challenges that the climate justice movement currently faces, because I think from where we're sitting, it's pretty much a daily uphill battle, and there are a number of characteristics um, in terms of the problem of climate change and the problem that faces climate justice advocates that are unique um, in terms mm -hmm. of 
the fact that we have to target decision makers in countries that are at the moment not so susceptible to the impacts of climate change. Um, even though, as you said, we need to look for those moments that present good opportunities for campaigns. Um, often, for example, the science of attribution, it lags, so it's difficult to capitalise on those moments of crisis. Um, and of course, we're taking on a network of incredibly powerful and vested interests, not just governments, but corporations that are often actively undermining the work that we're doing. And I think the Jubilee Debt movement is maybe one example of, of advocacy in the North that was successful in terms of um, addressing a problem that mostly manifested in the South, but it's difficult to find other sources of inspiration and I think we're losing both the narrative and the facts at the moment, even though the facts are on our side um, and the narrative is, is compelling enough to, to get enough of us to work on this every day despite um, not that many signs of progress. Thanks. Okay. Okay, so, um, yeah, absolutely agree that, that we need to uh, spot and make a big noise about examples of good donorship. So donors are not all the same. A, donors are not all the same. Some of them do long-term, some of them do short-term. We don't do nearly enough to actually publicize the good stuff. And that's why, you know, when people come with these blanket, yes, aid is good or aid is bad, you lose that ability to influence the system by saying, wow, look at the Swiss, they do 10-year funding. They actually make stuff happen, which is useful. Um, so, yeah, totally agree on that. Um, your other one was sort of, I couldn't quite work out whether there was a question in there or whether these were just all comments. I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said. So one of the, one of the, one of the absolute fair questions is, is this all old wine in new bottles? Is this basically just what we were saying in the 70s and 80s? Um, I have a rule of thumb which is never say this is just what we were doing in the 70s or 80s because it's really unfair on anybody who wasn't born during the 70s and 80s. Um, and I also think that actually it's not exactly the same. I, th I think it's, it's a spiral rather than a circle. So there's forward movement and there's definitely pendulum going around between state and market bottom up, top down, you know, but I think there is a, a progress thing going on there. Um, the role of outsiders, I mean, so if you don't propose solutions, I think that's a good start. And the two things I do in Oxfam which I think are useful is you suggest questions to ask and you chuck a whole bunch of case studies and see which ones stick, which ones seem relevant to people. You know, and even to the extent that I've seen people with almost like a bunch of playing cards, you know, 50 case studies on livelihoods, and you flick through and you just pick the three or four which look most relevant to your country or your issue. So it's that, those are things which kind of put in oxygen, you know, new ideas and thinking. The actual dynamics of cuts in aid are gonna be quite difficult, I think. Yeah, what you don't want is people coming in, the management consultant coming in and saying, I've got the plan, I'm just gonna ram this through. Yeah. Um, yeah, climate change, it's, it's, it's unique. I mean, it's, it's, it's on so many levels. We had this great discussion a few years ago about is there anything where people have to make a sacrifice now for future generations? And we ended up starting, we were talking about medieval cathedrals, you know, which take 100 years to build. And, I mean, we got into some weird stuff trying to find analogous things with climate change. I mean, a couple of things that I've noticed. One is I think the litigation is looking interesting. And it, yeah, interesting whether it goes the way of tobacco. You know, Exxon knew in the 70s. They didn't say anything till five minutes ago. 
does that make them liable? And we've got, um, a, I'll give you the address, we've got a fantastic um, uh, lawyer at Oxfam who's, who's starting a journal on public interest litigation and is looking at um, strategic litigation on climate change, which I'm sure lots of people are, but I'll happily put you in touch with him. Um, the other, and then the other one is, the, is what, uh, what you identified, the collective action problem of um, everybody who sits on their hands benefits from other people's sacrifices. But that's actually very common. That's tax avoidance, that's the arms industry, that's all sorts of other things. And we've got ideas of how to deal with collective action problems. Um, in the end, I think it's very hard to do without a tighter level of global governance, and that's not looking great at the moment. I think um, when I think about climate change, yeah, I'm sure you know, I, I don't know much about climate change, you know, I just kind of follow it, but it seems to me that um, the two areas of, I'm not sure hope is the right word, but the two areas of likely forward movement or movement are um, yeah, the whole win-win, renewables, that's clearly you know, going much faster than people anticipated and could make it profitable to reduce carbon. Yeah, that's great. But the other one which I, I've got much more mixed feelings about but I think is going to be inevitable is geoengineering. And I think NGOs are going to have to stop saying it's bad and start actually engaging with it um, because it seems to me that geoengineering is going to become a thing in the next 10, 15 years. And this is the kind of dumping a million tons of iron filings in the ocean to absorb vast amounts of carbon dioxide, that they're not going to dump it in the ocean off Australia. They're going to dump it in the ocean off poor countries. So there's going to be a whole distributive issue around geoengineering, which I think it will be our responsibility to get involved in. At the moment, we're doing our classic you know, NGOs and activists tend to like a small number of technologies and hate most of them. Um, we like things which are small, distributed, you know, and basically help us chat to each other, um, and we don't like all the other, other stuff. We're going to have to get off that on geoengineering and get more involved, I think. And social entrepreneurship, yeah. Um, I'm struggling with social entrepreneurship. Um, and I'm struggling because of exactly the hype that you identified. You know, so I'm teaching the LSE, and loads and loads of the students there um, from really very quite privileged backgrounds they want to start a social enterprise. Um, and what I've yet to see is much evidence that you can be both social and an enterprise for any long period of time. Uh, you tend to get dragged off in one direction or the other. So you're basically saying you can be chalk and cheese um, at the same time, and I'm not sure it's working very well. Um, and it's also massively overhyped, which always makes me suspicious. But there's probably, yeah, if you can, if you can, um, you know, if you can do bottom of the pyramid, if you can do things which are, which improve lives for more people and make a profit, then the advantage, obviously, is you can go to massive scale like mobile phones have done. But mobile phones were not designed as a social enterprise. Mobile phones were designed as a way to make money, which worked, just happened to benefit poor people. You know, the fridge was not designed as a feminist piece of engineering. It was, uh, or the washing machine rather, it was not designed in order to liberate women, but it did. So, so a lot of the benefits of technology and of sort of innovation are accidental. And it's quite interesting to see, uh, yeah, my question would be when is there, when have deliberate efforts to do it worked?
Okay. One, one final. I'm conscious of increasing incoherence, so one more is fine. <laughs> one, if there is one final question, otherwise I will wrap it up. Um, all right. Um, so we look at uh, how China developed and um, kind of think about how it developed in the, in the context of an authoritarian state, like with a lot more power in the central government. And because of that, they were able to make adjustments um, and kind of facilitate their development. Um, how do we support um, democratic development uh, as we know it, knowing that it's, it's very slow. It's very slow to make adjustments in a democratic system. So the easy ones to last. Um, so I'm really interested in how change happens in authoritarian systems because um, it does. And there's uh, political pressures on authoritarian governments. There's, you know, and so in China, the things I think that are interesting are, one, they consciously use pilots and experimentation. Uh, and and uh, they're actually quite good at spotting emergent change and then scaling it up, probably better than many democracies. Um, so, that, so that's interesting. The other one is there's an enormous amount of social protest and, as you, I'm sure you know, and, and, and sort of civil society activism in China, and the government keeps a very close eye on it, it represses it, but it's also very, very concerned with social cohesion, which is yeah, a particular concept which seems to be very, very... Yeah, they're aware that even authoritarian governments have, legit, you know, have to seek legitimacy in some sense. And so what I tend to do is to not go with democracy good, authoritarianism bad, but rather than closing down. So I think how, how outsiders behave in different contexts, and I find that more useful personally. Um, and I think in China right now, things to be... It's exactly what you were saying about countervailing forces. You know, you've got a, a nasty crackdown, but also really interesting shifts in, on, on a whole bunch of issues. Uh, and I just, I, I probably don't condemn nearly enough for an NGO person. I just like looking at stuff. All right. Um, thank you very much. That was very interesting. We covered a whole range of topics. Um, Duncan Green's book is available at the back for $20. Um, please buy one before you leave. Um, <laughs> you won't be allowed to leave. <laughs> uh, thanks very much for making the time to visit us here at the University of Sydney and um, would you all please join me in thanking Dr. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.